Hope that you are already underway in a blessed Lent. Uh, I have to say that Lent has become, in more recent years, really one of my absolutely favorite times in the calendar year and in the church year and in the, in the spiritual season. I haven't always felt that way. Growing up young in the church, I had, as a, as a child, had a different idea, just the wrong idea of what it was. It was. I think I sort of approached Lent like how one approaches the new year after the Christmas holidays, like New Year's resolutions and like, okay, I, I got to get my act together. Uh, got to sort of straighten up now that gotten lax and approached it as some sort of uh, heavy time in the sense of uh, of a striving or of a of an earning uh, in order to maybe then get to feel good a little bit at Easter. I've come to find in my experience with the Lord in more recent years that it is nothing like that at all, that it is a season of unusual grace. I, I've come to learn, too, that even the word Lent, the origins of the word, the Latin root, Lento, is, speaks of lengthening, and it speaks of the lengthening of light, the lengthening of daylight in this season. And how appropriate today for daylight savings. Congratulations, everyone, for getting your clocks right and for being here. It's always tricky to remember. But we've, even this morning, many conversations about uh, there's an excitement that comes with the increase of light. Uh, even this evening, when it, you finish dinner and it's still light outside, it, it, there's a feeling and there's, there's an anticipation that comes with that. That does speak of this liturgical season of Lent that we're in, an opportunity for more grace, for more light, for more of the Lord in our lives. There's a section, we didn't see it in the way that lectionary laid out the reading in Romans chapter 4 this morning, but there was a section from Psalm 32 that Paul quotes in there, and, and it, it speaks of this. I just, it's one of my very favorite psalms, too. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me all my guilt is gone. A season of more light, of more grace, of more forgiveness. A season, as the psalmist says, of ceasing to wrestle with our sin, to hide our sin, to deny it, but to bring it into the light and love of our Father in heaven who loves us and forgiveness and forgives us. Oh what joy. We do that from a place of belief in God. And if there's a word today that you'll see it's a thread that comes all the way through this message, it's, it's this word of belief. What does it look like to believe? It's such a common word. 
It's like the, how the word love is used in the English language. We use it for everything. We love our spouse and it has profound meaning and depth and we say we love pizza. Belief is, has profound implications for our relationship with God. And it's also a word that gets thrown around. I believe in this. I believe in that. I don't believe in this. Let's take a look at it. If you want to take, follow along, I'm going to be in a couple different places in Scripture, but we'll start in Romans 4, which was read in our New Testament lesson. fascinating section about Abraham, about faith, about righteousness, about the the role of the law and of grace. Just a couple verses from here. Abraham, starting at the beginning of chapter 4, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteousness because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. And then it reads on verse 6. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who were declared righteous without working for it. We just looked at that, Psalm 32. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. Sometimes we hear the word righteousness and there's an automatic association made to right behavior, morality, uh, rule keeping, not even in a negative sense, in a good sense. And that's not entirely wrong. But we're seeing here in the scripture that there's another, maybe a more foundational meaning to the idea of righteousness. It's right standing with God. It's being positioned rightly in relationship to God. And so we see here in these words in the fourth chapter of Romans that it was because of Abraham's faith, because he believed God not because of his deeds, not because of any moral perfection, because he certainly wasn't, like all of us. But it was his belief in God and in the promises of God and the words of God that was credited to him as righteousness. Not something to be worked for, but something to be received as the gift that it is. I used to misunderstand Lenten practices to think of, I was working myself up for some icing on the cake at Easter or something. I see them now. I cherish our Lenten practices as ways to make more space for more light, for greater belief, for righteousness in the sense of not striving for perfect behavior, but placing myself in right position with the Lord to know him and to grow in him more and more. It's a wonderful season. Jumping down just to verse 15 here in Romans chapter 4. 
Well, I saw it start in 14. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. And we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses. If we have faith like Abraham's, for Abraham is the father of all who believe. If God's promise, verse 14, is only for those who obey the law, then faith isn't necessary. Some people also misunderstand and say, well, well the law, God's law, God's ways, is, has, is a negative thing. Well, that's the Old Testament. Well, that's, that doesn't quite apply anymore. Not so. The law isn't bad, but we have to look at the law for what it was given to us to do, not to save us. The law wasn't given so that we could perfectly keep it on our own strength and power. Anyone who's tried knows it's not possible. Only Jesus has done that. The law is a teacher, a direction pointer. It's to point us to the heart of God that we would arrive there saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want your law, your ways, your truth, your life in my heart. I want to align my, I want to pattern and align my life in, according to your will. But in my sin, I struggle. I fall short. Lord, have mercy. That's the coming to God in that belief is what the law wants us to do. wants us to point us to the one in Jesus who hasn't erased the law but satisfied it, completely fulfilled it on our behalf. I love these words in verse 17. This is what the scriptures mean when God told him, Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God, listen to these words, who bring the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Just take a moment to hover over those words. Are there places in our life this Lenten season that have grown cold, that have grown dead? Hopes, dreams, relationships, efforts that we've made. We serve the God who brings dead things back to life. We serve the God that makes something new out of nothing. Let that hope and that expectancy and that joy well up in your hearts as we hear those words. What a mighty and loving God we serve. And the invitation is to believe, is to receive him, it's to come to him. Now, we saw in the gospel reading, the most famous, most well-known, especially at football games when they're kicking the extra point, chapter in scripture, John 3. Somebody's always inevitably holding up the John 3.16 sign. Not so much anymore, but you used to see that all the time. 
This famous, well-known conversation of Nicodemus, a leader, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. He knew all about what the law was and what it said. And apparently, we can read into it with a good heart. He was trying to do things right. was trying to know the truth. And as he encountered Jesus and the things that Jesus talked about and said as he was going about, he was intrigued. There was something, it spoke to that deeper part in his heart. He wanted to talk to Jesus and know more about it. They spoke at night, maybe because Nicodemus was nervous about being seen with Jesus, or maybe it was the time of day that worked out the best. Who knows? And they have this back and forth that's become so familiar to us, this conversation about being born again here at the beginning of John chapter 3. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus had clearly gotten his attention. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, You cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go into his mother's womb and be born again? He's taking Jesus very literally, what he was saying, and it wasn't an answer that he had prepared for or even understood at face value right away. And so they have this back and forth, Jesus and Nicodemus do, about what is this about being born again? certainly has something to do spiritually more than in the literal sense. And Jesus gives some explanation and leaves us with these words that again are so familiar and so profound. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who, hears that thread again, believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world so much, John 3.16, that he gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Clearly, we're seeing over and over in the grace of God this invitation to believe to receive. The end of the John's Gospel, there's uh, some phrases that say, the disciples saw Jesus do all these things and many, many other things that if they were written down, it would fill many, many books. But it says at the end of John's Gospel, but these things are written so that we would continue to believe and in believing have eternal life. Okay, let's dive one level deeper then on the picture of belief. I like to to think of it this way. This past week on TV, there was a, a special on. I don't know if anybody saw it. It was called Volcano Live. Anybody see Volcano Live? Okay, saw some of it. All right. Well, in case you missed it, I'll tell you all about it. There's this man, Nick Walenda, and his wife, and they're uh, tightrope walkers. You know, like you think about at the circus, 
holding the pole, walking across the tightrope, balancing over death-defying heights. And I don't quite know what Nick and his wife's motivation is, if it's just the adrenaline or if it's the media attention or to make it into the Guinness Book of World Records. I'm not sure. But they've made this career about doing tightrope walks in all sorts of places. They've done it in major cities, from one skyscraper to another skyscraper. They did this thing in Niagara Falls, uh, over a section of the falls, walking on the tightrope. Obviously, one wrong step, one misstep, one unexpected gust of wind, it's all over. Not recommended. Do not try this at home. So this past Wednesday, live TV special. Of course it has to be live because that adds to the anticipation and the, the, the adrenaline even as you're watching it. They were going to do something over an active volcano in Nicaragua. His wife had the uh, balancing on, you know, the big ring and you could hang upside down and hang by one leg and uh, do all these gymnastics types things over the top of the volcano. And then, of course, Nick with the tightrope that had been stretched out, holding the long pole, just like you'd picture, wearing a gas mask because the gas and the things that come up from an active volcano could cause you to breathe in these things and pass out, which would be very bad, especially on live TV. Even telling you about it, it makes me nervous and uncomfortable of the sight of him walking across. You know how long it might take one to walk from one end to a volcano to another? Giving away a little bit of the ending here, but it took him 31 minutes. That's a long time. All right, why all this stuff about Nick Walenda and tightrope walking and the live show about the volcano? Even before he did the volcano thing, you might say that Nick Walenda's the greatest tightrope walker to have ever lived. Niagara Falls, skyscrapers, now the volcano. He made it, by the way. He didn't pick that up successfully. And, his, and did his wife. You might, and have good reason to believe that Nick Walenda is the greatest tightrope walker in the world. He's shown it, certainly, time and time again. They didn't do this on the show. I don't know that they've ever done this in anywhere that he's done these stunts. But while most people now who care or follow it would believe that Nick is the greatest tightrope walker in the world, there's another way to say another kind of belief. They didn't do this, but what if when he, after the 31 minutes, when he made it to the one side across, he said... Okay, I'm going back across to the other side. How many believe I can do it? Probably most people there would say, absolutely, we believe. You've shown us. All right, well this time, I'm going to push a wheelbarrow in front of me. Instead of my long pole, I'm going to hold a wheelbarrow and I'm going to walk across. How many believe I could do that? Again, most people probably would say, from what we've seen, absolutely. Then the big question, who wants to jump in the wheelbarrow first and be taken across? All the hands go down. It's one thing to 
believe, to give mental assent to, oh yeah, you can do it. And another thing, to believe in the sense of putting ourselves in the wheelbarrow, to putting ourselves in the care of, to entrusting our life, our livelihood, talking about believing in God now, our well-being, the forgiveness of our sins, our salvation, our worries, our fears, our concerns, that nagging issue about not ever being able to live up to the law. And what does that mean in terms of our relationship and our standing with God? In all of that, the invitation from Jesus is to believe. Not just to agree in our heads that Jesus did it, lived perfectly and sinlessly. He did. But to get in his wheelbarrow and entrust him to take us from one point to another where we could not go without him. Jesus made a way in his death and in his resurrection where there was no way for us to become righteous in his righteousness, for us to become in right relationship with God in the forgiveness of our sins. Friends, that's good news. That's good news. One more piece about this invitation to believe. To believe in the wheelbarrow sense. I came across this just recently. I learned something new in John chapter 7. And I just wanted to share it because it's just has, it's had me thinking since I came across this over and over because it fills in so much of the, more to me of the tone and the color and some of what Jesus was doing when he walked on this earth. So this is the beginning of chapter 7 in John. What's going on is in Jerusalem there's being celebrated Sukkot, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, a major religious feast where the Jewish people would remember God's protection and provision in the desert, in the temporary homes. And so you go and you build shelters. And it was a big, big deal, a big religious festival. So we pick up the story here. After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. And Jesus' brothers said to him, listen to what his brothers, family, extended family, said to him, leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. You can do such wonderful things. Show yourself to the world. And in case we didn't pick up on the little tinge of sarcasm there. Verse 5 tells us, for even his brothers didn't believe him. This is the big moment. It's the big festival. Go become famous, Jesus. Go show off. This is where all the who's who need to be. And so if you're, you're going into ministry, <laughs> you better go and make a name for yourself. It's not what Jesus was about. So he says, Now's not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. 
And then we find out as the story progresses that he does go. And I just kind of love the, this about Jesus. He goes, but he goes in his own time. He goes when he's ready. He goes when the time is right, not when he's being egged on to go for the wrong reasons. He goes to the festival, and even his presence there, it does stir up among the religious leaders of the day, among the people in society, among those who were trying to follow God, all sorts of reactions, believing, not believing, not sure, angry, curious, all of the above. But here's the thing that just arrested my heart. Here he is at the festival, verse 37. Picture any festival you've been like, uh, you've been at. Picture when we celebrate the holiday season, Thanksgiving, Christmas, that elongated time of what we call the holidays. It's a mix of everything, isn't it? It's a mix of joy and good memories, and you're happy to be there, and you're happy to be doing it, and excitement. It's a mix of hassle and tiredness and effort to do it. Somebody, one of the kids is sick and there's this trouble on the road and all those kind of things. Some of what the holidays stir up in us is, is the best sense of things and some of it are conversations and people that you're not looking forward to see. And it's all of that, right? But it's all of us trying to enter into something. I think that has at least some greater value. Picture this festival with all of that humanity going on in it. The best of things, the worst of things, the smell, the sweat, the heat, the, those that are there for celebrity, those that are there with pious hearts, all of the above. And here's Jesus. He does go. And at the final day, the climax of the festival, verse 37, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who's thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit, who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. I'd read over that many times in my life and, and missed it in this sense. Jesus in this place, in this festival, seeing the people yearning, some, some yearning after God in a pure and beautiful way, some yearning for recognition or yearning to follow the rules. You're supposed to be there. You're supposed to do these things. It's the right thing to do. Struggling with difficulty. Have you ever felt like that in life? Have you ever felt just that sense of, ah, oh, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm wanting to follow God. I make mistakes and I get back up. I ask God for forgiveness and I keep going. In, the, in my life of this difficulty and that difficulty and the kids getting sick and this inconvenience, just trying to do the right thing and it, it can become tiring and sometimes discouraging. It may be as if Jesus picked up on that and he's looking around and he says, Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? This, the real thing, the real root, the living water that you're here at this 
this on day after day festival that you're looking for. Are you hungry and are you thirsty? Come to me. Come to me. Believe in me. Rivers of living water, as the scripture said, flow from Jesus. But here's the thing. He didn't say it like that. I always pictured it as, you know, how Jesus probably would talk. Come to me, all who are thirsty. I will fill you. In this real life incident that really happened, the way it reads in the Greek, it says he cried out. The Greek word there is, uh, it's, it's an onomatopoeia, a word that sounds like what it is. Uh, let, me, let me make sure I get it right. Krazo or krazo. It speaks in the Greek of the sound of a shrieking like a crow. Krazo. It's screaming something at a volume that a crazy man would scream. It has a quality, not just of volume, but of intensity and desperation that if I, and I would have to turn the microphone off and I won't do it, but if I demonstrated it here, it would be off-putting, even disturbing. There's a similar but different word used when Jesus speaks to Lazarus and tells him to come out of the tomb. It's similar in that the word used there is that Jesus spoke loudly and he exclaimed something. But the word used here Krazo speaks of having such an emotional intensity in what one is saying that the words are almost unintelligible. Where you are so intently trying to get the point across that you can't even be understood. That even the, the quality of the sound would make some go, huh. But I love that. Because that's the intensity of the invitation that Jesus is giving to us. Come to me. It's me. Jesus is saying, the law, it's pointed to me. Receive these rivers of living water. Be in right and eternal relationship with the God who raises the dead to life. The God who makes something new out of nothing. Be born again. Be born anew. Sometimes Jesus is very subtle and very nuanced in his parables and the meaning of things. But here he's in public screaming at the top of his lungs. Are you thirsty? Are you tired? Are you hungry? Are you discouraged? Are you in need? Are you beating yourself up? Are you discouraged? Are you hurt in your struggle with sin? Come to me. Believe in me. Believe, and as we've seen in that sense, not just here, but in the put ourselves in the wheelbarrow sense. Let us pray. Lord God, as we look this morning and hear your invitation so loud and clear to believe in you, We sometimes feel like the man in Scripture that said to you, Jesus, I believe and help my unbelief. 
But you didn't turn that man away. You received him with grace and with love and kindness. Lord, we believe and help our unbelief. In this season especially, the season that you've given us for more light, for more grace, let us receive you in greater measure to grow in the love and knowledge of you, Lord Jesus. To walk with you, to know you, fill us with your living water. Refresh us and renew us as we continue to believe and to walk with you. Jesus, I pray these things in your holy name.